Well, this morning, it's our joy to open another book of the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, would you stand with me and let's read together Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 5 this morning. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Would you join me? We're reading together in the ESV. If you don't have a Bible this morning and would like to join the reading, the reading is actually in the bulletin. You can look there as well if you'd like to. Let's read Ruth 1, 1 through 5 together in unison. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the women was left without her two sons and her husband. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we know the words of Christ who said that the Old Testament points to Him. We know that the Old Testament, the Bible from cover to cover, reveals the glory of Your steadfast love and faithfulness in the presence of our sinfulness. So Father, we ask You, as we begin to study this book of Ruth, this precious story, that you would open our eyes to behold your faithfulness and steadfast love. And may we learn to respond to you appropriately through Christ and respond with faithful trust and repentance so that you may use us, bring us into your way of redemption and use us in the lives of others to work your eternal redemptive plan. We ask this for your glory. We ask you to take us beyond our own abilities in both communicating the truths of this story and receiving the truths of this story so that you are at work among us to transform us and to cause us to worship as we ought. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This morning, I want to give you a bit of an introduction to the book of Ruth, and then we'll begin to apply it together as we go. A few questions can help us to be introduced to the book of Ruth. First, who was Ruth? Who was Ruth? Well, the, the book of Ruth is one of the two Old Testament books that bear the names of women, and they are the women whose stories those books unfold. Of course, when you think of the book of Ruth, many of you probably have said, as I've talked about it with you, Oh, I love the story of Ruth. That's one of my favorites. How many of you probably think that way? You don't have to raise your hand, but oh, I love the story of Ruth. And and that's true. It is one of the most beloved accounts in all of Scripture. In fact, interestingly, it's, it's acclaimed as a literary masterpiece by both the people of God and the people of the world throughout the centuries. It's about a Hebrew family, as you know, who experienced tremendous catastrophe. It's about a Moabite woman, not an Israelite woman, a Moabite woman whom God providentially brings into a relationship with that family, and through her, God shows that family and the people of Israel and the people of God's choice, as we'll see, great kindness and mercy and steadfast love. Of course, that Moabite woman is Ruth. And this book should be taken as a true historical account of that woman, Ruth, and the events that surrounded her life. Ruth is mentioned 12 times in the four chapters of this story, and she's the main character of the story. However, the Old Testament doesn't mention her again. But she is mentioned again in the Bible, isn't she? She's mentioned again 
in the genealogy of Matthew as the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. That's who Ruth is, and we'll learn so much more about her as we walk through this story together. Another question that you might consider, when was Ruth written? And that's a different question than asking, when did the events of Ruth take place? I'm first asking, when was Ruth written? And we have some clues from the book of Ruth that help us to know when it was written. Ruth was probably written sometime during the reign of David the king, which could approximately be 1011 to 971 BC. This is presumed because the great and famous King David is the last name mentioned in the genealogy of chapter 4. So no one's confused when you come to the genealogy of chapter 4. It's not a prophetic genealogy. It's a current genealogy, and it ends with the King David. But it doesn't mention Solomon. So it probably happened. This story was probably written, not happened, probably written during the reign of King David. And apparently Ruth was written quite some time after the events of this story actually happened because the social custom, and you'll remember this from reading it through, the social custom of handing your sandal to someone else to promise to follow through on a certain commitment had to be explained. It says actually in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction and so on. So the author is giving a little bit of editorial to his present audience about a custom that was happened a long time ago. So the events of the book of Ruth happened way before the writing of the book of Ruth. Hebrew tradition, the Talmud, attributes the writing of the story of Ruth To whom? Do you know? Samuel, the prophet. Now, we don't have certainty that that's true, and there's no evidence in the book of Ruth as to who wrote it. And so, most most commentators simply say that the author of of the book is unknown. But we have some some hint, possibly, there from Hebrew tradition that, that Samuel wrote it. And Samuel may have written Ruth sometime, of course, after he had anointed David as king, right, in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 to 13, and obviously before he died, 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. So where did the events of Ruth happen? Well, we have some indication here right in the book as well. So if you can remember your map of the Middle East, you might see some things in your mind's eye. There are two locations mentioned in the first scene of the story. First, you see Bethlehem. Bethlehem is located... If I'm doing it from your direction, there's the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee. And so Bethlehem is about northwest, right in the corner there of the Dead Sea. Moab is the other location. That's located the southern eastern corner of the Dead Sea. And so this entire story happens in one of those two places. Bethlehem in Judah and Moab and then back to Bethlehem. When did the events of Ruth happen? So we've talked about an author, we've talked about location, but when did the events of Ruth happen? Now, like I said earlier, it happened way before its writing. The story opens with a time marker. What does it say? We know when the book of Ruth happened because it says in the days when the judges ruled. Right? When is that? The account of Ruth happened during the same time as the events of the previous book of the Old Testament, which is a very helpful and interesting connection. So you have the book of Judges right before, and the accounts of the life of Israel through the ruling days of the Judges. And this was the time between the leadership of Joshua, right, whom Moses appointed. It was the time between the leadership of Joshua, which ended with his death approximately 1390 BC, and the beginning of Israel's monarchy, which started when? with the anointing of Saul as king, right? And that approximately happened at 1051 BC. So sometime between Joshua's leadership and Saul's leadership, the story of Ruth took place. And that's when this time of the judges happened. 
Some would even say that the story of Ruth most likely took place during the judgeship of Jair, approximately 1126 to 1105 BC. That's found in Judges 10, 3 through 5. Again, it's hard to know exactly these details, but we have some pretty good indications from different things that the Scripture says. The events of this story happened in the span of about 11 to 12 years. So from, Ro- from Ruth 1 to Ruth, the end of Ruth 4, about 11 to 12 years. And you can kind of track that throughout the story because you can look in chapter 1, 1 through 18, and see that that happened in about 10 years. For example, notice in verse 4 of Ruth 1, the last sentence of that verse says, and they lived there in Moab about how long? 10 years. So you have 10 years. And then more catastrophe happens and they end up returning to Bethlehem. So then from chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 2, verse 23, what you have there is this account of the barley harvest, the time of barley harvest where Ruth goes and and she harvests the grain from Boaz's fields and so on. And that harvest is about from mid-April to mid-June. So you have two more months there. So two years, maybe, around there, two months. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 is really one day and one night where you have one day in Bethlehem and then one night at the threshing floor. And we'll work through that story, part of the story together. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, you see Boaz finishing his legal transaction with the nearer kinsman redeemer, marrying Ruth, and then they have Obed as their child. So maybe that happened in about a year. So we're a little over 11 years. So somewhere between 11 and 12 years, the story of Ruth unfolds. Now, we can see some of those introductory elements, but really, in my mind, one of the most important questions to ask about a book is, what's the point? What's the purpose? Why did Samuel or some unknown author write this book? Well, if you were to look into your uh, John MacArthur study Bible, there are seven theological themes that are found in this book. And he really represents well, I think, the vast amount of comments that many scholars have said, well, I think the the purpose of the book is this. No, no, I think the purpose of the book is this. There's a lot of discussion about what is the purpose of the book, and I think you'll find even a bit of that conflict in your own understanding as you begin to read through the book. What is the point of this book? I can see so many avenues of very important thought that are branching off, and I think that's kind of the way Ruth is. I think there are some overarching grand purposes, but it's multi-layered. God in his amazing providential hand is doing so many things in the lives of his chosen covenant people. And we'll see that. I hope, I hope we'll be able to see some of these themes unfold as we walk through this story together over the next several weeks. Here's a few of those from a few different scholars as they think about the purpose. And you'll, you'll, you'll remember some of these as you've read the book of Ruth. One is God's redemptive plan extends beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. That is a major theme in the book of Ruth. Because you'll remember that Ruth is not an Israelite woman. In fact, you're reminded of it continually throughout the book of Ruth. Oh, that's a Moabite woman. And the more you know about Moabites, the more surprising that is to you, which we'll talk about. God's redemptive plan extends beyond the Israelite people to the nations. Another theme that we can think about is that women are co-heirs with men of God's salvation grace. That, that seems obvious to us in our culture, but not so in every culture of the world. We remember the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 3 that Jew or Greek, slave or free, women or men, all are one in Christ. And some of that theme is woven into the book of Ruth as well. You might look at Ruth as a picture of a virtuous woman. That's described in Proverbs 31. In fact, that word is used for her in this book as well. God's providential care. You you can see God's hand through this book, and it's an amazing thing. In fact, there's a verse that is really something to me, and I'll, I'll point it out when we come to it, but when... When Ruth unknowingly goes to glean in Boaz's fields, the text reads like this, and it so happened that it happened. 
it's like, oops. And it's an overstatement to say, no, this is not a mistake. This is God's hidden providential hand behind all things. And there she is, gleaning in a field of whose field she had no idea. And that's all God at work. So you see God's providential care every moment during this story as he's fulfilling his own perfect will, moving each piece forward. Another theme that you'll notice in this story is the women in the messianic line. The genealogy begins again at the end of chapter 4, and it certainly continues in Matthew chapter 1, where you see Ruth and Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. Those are the only women mentioned in the genealogies. And you wonder, why are they there? Well, God has great and glorious purposes for that. Another purpose, another theological theme in in this book is, is it proves David's right to be king. Again, that's a very fitting theme in terms of God's covenant promises. God, and we'll talk about God's covenant promises in a moment too, but God's covenant promises are being unfolded even in this book to where we see God promised to send a seed who will accomplish His redemptive promises and His plans. And that was through David. And God is fulfilling those promises to bring salvation to the world. And certainly, maybe the greatest theme of all is that this book points ultimately to the Messiah. Because it's not ultimately about Boaz and his virtuous character that did one, that God used to do wonderful things among His covenant people. And it's not even ultimately about David. It's about Jesus. It's about all that God is doing throughout redemptive history to bring about His promise of the seed who will save. That's, that's the ultimate point of this book. Another wonderful pastor shepherd, Tom Pennington, adds to this list, and he also points out the fact that there's a theme of a remnant of God's people during dark times. Now, this is always a challenge when you're studying the Old Testament. And you think about those people. Have you ever asked yourself, for example, think of Elimelech and his family. Have you ever asked yourself, were they saved? Were they saved? Were they the remnant? Or were they the national unbelieving, unbelieving Israel whom God was judging? And that's a tough question to answer sometimes. But here's, here's what we need to keep in mind is that no matter how difficult those days may be, God always has His remnant. He always feeds His true people with faith. And the call is always the same, to repent of our sin and to trust in the saving promises of Christ and to follow His will. And that's the call that we see in this chapter, in this book as well. In fact, the remnant of God's people during these dark times, you you might say... that the account of Ruth happened during the dark ages of Israel. We think about the dark ages of the church, and we think about the Middle Ages, right? And the the Lord using the Protestant Reformation to recover the truths of the gospel. But you know what? Ruth happened during the dark ages of Israel. The days of the judges. That was like 340 years of spiritual darkness. And we'll talk more and more about that as we go, what the days of the judges were like. But this is a story of redemption. God bringing a family out of their sin, their depravity, their faithlessness, and making them fruitful for His glory. It's a personal story of the cycle of sin and deliverance that we see throughout the book of Judges. We'll talk about that as well. We've talked about the cycle in the past. We'll mention that again of of Israelites' sin and, and then God's deliverance. Well, this This is sort of that story in the life of one person or one family in Israel. And that makes it a very personal story. Again, it's it's challenging to say what is the major theme or purpose for the writing of Ruth. And and that's why students of the Bible offer different suggestions on what they think is the main theme. But I'm going to give you a a main theme that I think is I'm going to keep over our study of this particular book at this time. Here it is. I think Ruth is a personal account of Yahweh's faithful hand providentially working to show His covenant people great steadfast love. I want us to behold, and that's why I've titled this series that, Ruth, 
Behold the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. That's what I want us to see through this book and learn to respond to his faithfulness and steadfast love rightly. It's a personal account of Yahweh's faithful hand providentially working to show his covenant people great steadfast love. You know, this few weeks ago, Jeremy Wickert led us in the beginning of the service to read Psalm 117. And I've been studying the book of Ruth for months, trying very hard to, to bring all this together for us. And this was quite a challenge for me, but I've enjoyed the study of it. And as I was listening to him lead us in the reading of Psalm 117, I thought, that's the book of Ruth right there. Listen, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, all nations, all peoples, right? God's welcoming in the nations. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's Psalm 117. To me, that is the main theme of the book of Ruth. Praising the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of God. Psalm 48, 9 is the invitation then. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. All right, here we are. We are the temple of the living God, First Timothy tells us. And we're here together, gathered around the inspired book of Ruth, and we're going to together think on the steadfast love of God and ask God graciously to enable us to respond to it rightly. And really, what we're seeing in the book of Ruth is Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, goodness and steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life. And at the end of that, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. That's what you see in Ruth. You see the steadfast love of God pursuing this family relentlessly bringing them into that place of restoration and fruitfulness for his kingdom and one day, now, dwelling in his house forever. Before we get into the verses, I want to ask you, what we need to understand some, some background, some redemptive background so that we can understand the book of Ruth better and, and apply it more effectively to our own hearts. What is God's steadfast love? What is his faithfulness? Let me define it this way. God's steadfast love is the affection that he has in himself and the loyalty of Yahweh to mercifully, graciously, and kindly choose a people to bring into covenant relationship with himself. That's steadfast love from cover to cover. It's talked about in different terms in the New Testament. But overall, the steadfast love of God is God's affection and his loyalty to, to choose whom he will, to bring into covenant relationship with himself, and then to keep those people in that covenant relationship with himself forever. That's steadfast love. Then what's his faithfulness? It's a different word. That is God's commitment. That is Yahweh's commitment to to mercifully, graciously, kindly fulfill all of the promises that he has made to those that he has brought into covenant relationship with himself. So God's steadfast love, because he is love, he chooses and keeps people for himself, and then he faithfully fulfills the promises that he makes for them. That's what you see in Ruth. God choosing people. God keeping people. God guiding people. God fulfilling his promises to them. Ruth is a brief and very personal account of how God shows his steadfast love and faithfulness to those he has brought into covenant relationship with himself. And the great and glorious backdrop of the story of Ruth, even the story of the whole Bible, is that covenant love and faithfulness of God at work in the midst of human sinfulness. Take into account the redemptive history from creation to the events of Ruth. Because that's what they would have known, right? First, Yahweh creates. They had the creation. 
account. They had, they had the Pentateuch. Yahweh creates. He speaks everything into existence. And he, and he loves his creation. And he fellowships with his creation. And he gives a purpose to his creation. Be fruitful, multiply, extend my reign. Magnify my glory in the earth as those reigning in my place on the earth. And I will give you everything you need to do that well. Here, here is food. Here is the world for you. And God in His generosity and kindness has poured that out on creation. And then we immediately see the rebellion of man. Man doubting God's goodness. Man thinking that that God is withholding something good from him. And so he reaches out in his own sense of, of, of false independence and takes for himself what God has made and said, I will be satisfied in the creation. I will be king over this creation. God, I don't need you. And so then Yahweh curses his creation. Right? We see that in Genesis 3. God curses his creation, and rightly so, justly so, according to his promise to Adam. But then, even as the curse is coming out of the mouth of God, He's making a covenant. He's making a promise. He made a promise to Adam. He said in Genesis 3.15, well, Adam and Eve, and speaking to Satan even, I will crush the head of the serpent. And that serpent will crush or bite the heel of the seed. But I will send a seed. What, What is God saying? That he would provide a seed, a Messiah, a Savior, to come and reverse the curse. And he would do it through the seed. And so God's promise is to send that seed, that Messiah, who will bring his covenant people from fall to glory. Isn't that the point of the whole Bible? That God promises to reverse the curse through a seed, bringing them from fall to glory. God made that promise in the midst of another curse. Through the words of Noah, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 27, we see Noah saying that God will expand the boundaries of Japheth. That God will dwell in the tents of Shem. And that God will cause Ham to serve, or Canaan there, to serve his brothers. See, even there you have a great people with an important blessing coming through them, the seed, the one who would Dwell among us, like John says in 1.14, and the land on which to dwell. He made those same promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, didn't he? I will send a seed, and through this seed, lowercase s-e-e-d, will come the seed, uppercase s-e-e-d. And through that redemptive work that I promised to do through you, in spite of you, I will bless the world. With salvation, I will save the nations, even all nations, God said to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. A countless seed, a seed that would bring blessing, a land that would be filled with that seed, and a seed from which the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, would come. You see, these are the covenants of the Old Testament. There's more, but these are the ones that certainly Ruth and or the, the people of Ruth's time would have known. These are the Old Testament covenants. And you know what? They're really the same word as the New Testament gospel. It's all the gospel. In gracious, loyal love and faithfulness, Yahweh promises to accomplish all that is necessary to reverse the curse of His creation for His own glory forever. God lovingly chooses His people for Himself faithfully does for those people all that is needed to bring them from that fall to glory, and even faithfully gives to them all that is needed for them to participate in His universal plan of bringing His creation from fall to glory. That's the promise of the covenants. That's the gospel. It's a universal promise because it's a covenant blessing for all the nations who will believe. It's an individual promise. Covenant blessing for the one who believes, right? That's always been the invitation, even from Adam, right? Abraham what? Believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's about recreation through the promised seed, Jesus Christ. 
that those who believe will be recipients of those covenant blessings, that those who believe will become players in the fulfillment of those covenant blessings through the Messiah. Blessing for eternity. And those who are faithful to the covenant promises believe in the word of Yahweh. They believe that God will graciously do through the messianic seed for them all that he has promised to do. And that unfolds to the gospel, right? That Christ lived and died and rose, and that is how God redeems us. And those who are faithful to those covenant promises then turn from their sin, in spite of what their earthly mind tells them is convenient or logical, they turn from their sin to be involved in God's plan and participate in the unfolding and the blessing of those promises, all by grace through faith. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, right? And when is the ultimate time of all these promises? What is, what is, the, what is the true place of the fulfillment of all of God's promises? Was it Canaan ultimately? No. What is it? Heaven. The presence of God. And the ultimate place is the, the new heaven and the new earth. All that is promised finds its yes and amen in Christ. And all who believe and repent and place their faith in Him, and they are placed in union with Christ and are called in the New Testament joint heirs of that new heaven and that new earth. You see, think of it this way. I want you to get a picture in your mind as we start to move into the book of Ruth. Yahweh's covenant people are on a road. Every single one of them, they're on a road. They've been placed onto this road of redemption. And they're moving from curse to creation, or to recreation. They're moving from fall to glory. Yahweh has graciously chosen many and placed them on that road, even though they don't deserve it. None of us do, right? And this road from fall to glory is certain. All whom God has chosen for this road will exercise faith and repentance toward Him. And they will reach the promised destination. Remember what Philippians 1.6 says? He who began a good work in you will complete it the day of Jesus Christ. Yahweh will provide everything through Christ to bring His chosen covenant people from curse to glory. In fact, you could say this, that Ruth is a story about Romans 8. Ruth is God working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. They're moving. God is moving them from fall to glory. Ruth is about God giving us all things in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the story of Ruth as well. All things. Even through great catastrophe, because it's, there's nothing that can separate us from the saving love, the steadfast love of God, and his purposes for us. Yahweh has planned for every one of his chosen people to participate in his redemptive plan, not only by turning from sin and trusting in the seed, but also by the good works that he has planned for them. You see, this story is like a tapestry too. There's all kinds of threads woven together, and Ruth is one of them, and Naomi is one of them, and Boaz is one of them. It's a very personal story demonstrating the faithful providential working of God in the lives of his chosen. But you know what? This story is not just about Naomi and Ruth. Not ultimately. This is not about the people of Israel, even ultimately. This is about all of God's chosen people. This story is your story and mine if you are in Christ. You who are in Christ are on the road from fall to glory. And you are one of the pieces of thread woven through God's tapestry of redemption. He will do all that is necessary to move you from fall to glory. He will because He is faithful. He has chosen you. He will keep you if you are in Christ. And He will graciously use your life for the advancement of His purposes, His redemptive plans, bringing others onto that road and spurring others on from that road, on that road from fall to glory. And our response to Him, because of His steadfast love and faithfulness, must be continually, 
again and again and again to turn from our own worldly thinking, selfish ways, and sinfulness to trust Him, to trust His promises, to walk in His ways, to believe His Word, all the way from the fall to glory. Now, of course, no one starts out in glory, right? Nobody's story starts out in glory. Every one of our stories starts out in sinfulness. So it was with Ruth. So it was with Naomi and their family. And yet in the darkness of human sinfulness, the grace of God shines brightly. I hope you can see the backdrop that I'm trying to paint for you that's behind the book of Ruth. Now, I'm going to lead us through the book of Ruth over the next few weeks as if it were a play with seven scenes. Can I show you the seven scenes first? And maybe we'll play with the titles of each scene as we go. But the first scene, scene one, is verse one, one through five. We'll look at that today. Naomi's family move to Moab. Scene two is chapter one, six through 22. And there you see Naomi and Ruth returning to Bethlehem. Scene three in this play is chapter two, verses one through 23. And there you see Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. Scene four will be chapter three, one through 18, Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. Scene five, chapter four, one through 12, Boaz makes legal arrangements. Scene 6, chapter 4, 13 through 17, Ruth and Boaz are married and have Obed. Scene 7, the last scene, chapter 4, 18 through 22, the genealogy of David the king. So let's look, let's begin this story together and see where it begins to go. Number one, I don't have an outline for you in your bulletin this morning, forgive me for that, but if you can write these things down, I think it will help you to, to track the text. Number one, Israel's unfaithful state. Verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now there's a lot packed into that. In the days when the judges ruled. What do you know about the book of Judges? Well, you know where the book of Judges ends. You can maybe look across the page or turn a leaf back. Look at Judges Chapter 21, verse 25. Here's what most of us remember about the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was absolute chaos in Israel during this time. There was individual clan leaders that were fighting with each other and so on. And there was this constant cycle of God's people going back into sin, idol worship, and then there would be a season of chastening. And coming out of that season of chastening, the people would realize what was happening to them, and they would cry out to Yahweh in repentance and ask for deliverance, and God would deliver them. And He did so, and you know the stories, right? Gideon, Samson, Jael, so on. But that cycle happened over and over and over again. This is a period of Israelite history that was apparently ruled by human depravity. And this was during a low point in that cycle, during which God's people were running headlong into their faithless disobedience, and Yahweh was chastening them. Because you see there that there was a famine in the land. Now, in the book of Judges, when did God send famine? When the people needed to open their ears and their hearts again to Yahweh. So you have Israel's unfaithful state, but then secondly, you have Yahweh's faithful response. Now, you might not think of the sending of a famine as a faithful response from Yahweh, but that is exactly what it is. How is that? Because Yahweh said He would. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28. Verse 
here's God's, here is God's promise to His people in His covenant. I want you to look first at verse 15. Deuteronomy 28.15 But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he begins to list them. And look at the very end of that. Verse 23. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. God promised His people that if, that if they forget His promises and live faithlessly, loving their sin, walking in obedience, that this is what will become of them. God will chasten them with famine. And so that's what you have here in Ruth chapter 1, is the people of Israel walking in sin, walking in idolatry, unfaithful to Yahweh, and yet Yahweh is faithful to them for their good, out of steadfast love. There was a famine in the land. And, and, and actually verse 6 implies this as well, because it says at the end of verse 6 that the Lord, that Yahweh had visited His people and given them food. So Yahweh lifted the famine in verse 6. And so you see the people of Israel, as Judges indicates, coming out of this season of famine because God had visited them with chastening and they were beginning to respond in repentance. So you have Israel's unfaithful state, you have Yahweh's faithful response, then you have one family's, number three, one family's unfaithful move. That's verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, you might look at that and say, well, what's wrong with going to Moab? Well, think about that. Where did this family live, for one? What's, what town did they come from? Bethlehem. What does the name Bethlehem mean? It means house of bread. It was an indication of God's promise to His people that if you repent and walk in my ways, and trust my promises, I will meet your needs. And didn't, didn't the people of Israel by the time of Ruth know the stories of the wilderness? How God had opened the rock and given them water? How God had sent manna to feed them daily? How God had given them quail and so on and so on, and not let their clothes wear out or their shoes wear out? I mean, you read Deuteronomy 8 and you're amazed at God's loving kindness and faithfulness to His people. And yet here we see a man who knows those things, but yet leads his family to go to a place where God has not promised to meet their needs in disobedience to God's covenant will. Moab is not the promised land. Moab is not the place that was assigned to the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. That was not where God promised to meet their needs. That was not what God had in store for them. Now, Moab, if you know Moab, it kind of escalates the guilt of this faithless decision because Moab's origin was what? Where did, where did the people of Moab come from? Genesis chapter 19, 37, they were the offspring of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And the kings of Moab continually were trying to curse the Israelites. You remember the story of Balak, the king, and Balaam, and how he had hired Balaam to curse Israel. Moab hated Israel and wanted nothing but their destruction. Sounds like the church in the world, right? God's chosen people and the kingdom of darkness. And the, in Numbers chapter 25, the women of Moab strategically, 
seduced the men of Israel into sin. In fact, Judges 3, verses 12 through 30, speaks of 18 years of oppression. That was one of the cycles of oppression that you see in the book of Judges, where the Moabites oppressed Israel, making them their slaves. And Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, indicate that the law did not even allow the Moabites to enter the assembly and attend the assembly of Israel. But, humanly speaking, in Elimelech's mind, Moab was a nice, fertile plain where he could go and get food. It made sense to him, I'm sure, right? My family's hungry. Moab, I I know the history of Moab. I know the history of Israel, how God cared for us, but I don't know what to do right now. I am going to Moab. I'm going to this massive plain with fertile farmlands, and I'm going to feed my family there. You know, it's interesting when you look at when you look at the titles that come along with Elimelech, what does the name Elimelech mean? My God is king. That's what it means. And so there's a hint there maybe for us that the parents of Elimelech were faithful and they had named their son based on their heart conviction that Yahweh is their king. But by the time Elimelech begins to name his sons, those names aren't so much Yahweh-directed. The name of his first son means weak. The other one, sickly. I mean, he's focused entirely on his circumstances and forgetful of Yahweh in one generation. In fact, it says he's Bethlehem of Ephrathites. The Ephrathites. That was an old legacy Family of Bethlehem that had certainly been faithful to worship Yahweh for a long time. And yet we see this man, Elimelech, abandoning the promises of God, forgetting the faithfulness of God, forgetting the upbringing of faithfulness to Yahweh the King, and moving out on his own with a worldly mindset, willing to sin and disobey God's will in order to satisfy himself, seek his own security in the surrounding nations, in spite of everything. And so he chose to leave the house of bread. He chose to disregard God's will. He chose to distrust God's covenant promises. But that sounds an awful lot like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Leaving God's place, doubting God's promises, disregarding God's will. He took the path of worldly wisdom, He left the place of God's promises to the place of worldly satisfaction. And apparently, once they got there, their status began to change, slowly, for sure. Look at what the the text calls them. In verse 1, he went to the man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to do what? Sojourn there, right? That's, all right, I'm going to pitch a tent, I'll stay for a little while, I'll... I'll get what I need and move on my way, right? That's a sojourner, isn't it? But notice, by the time you get to the end of verse 2, they went into the country of Moab, and then what? They stayed there. They remained there. And so again, you have this, almost this cyclical pattern. You have Israel's unfaithful state. You have Yahweh's faithful response with famine. You have one family's unfaithful move. And again, you have Yahweh's faithful response. What is Yahweh's faithful response to their unfaithfulness? Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. That's That's a difficult blow, but it's not yet what it's going to be. It was God's initial response to them. Come on back. Turn, let me restore you. Trust me. I love you. That's what this is. This is, you're seeing the behind the scenes providential hand of God saying to this family, I love you. I won't let you pursue that kind of unfaithfulness. I will do what's necessary to bring you back. I will bring you from the fall to glory. You see that? Again, Yahweh's 
faithful response. Elimelech was probably in his 40s. Well, why do I say that? Because the young men were usually, in Israelite times, married in their early 20s, probably like, like today. And so that probably would have put Elimelech in his early 40s and, and possibly the boys in their teen, teenage years when Elimelech died. It certainly happened before the boys were married, as the text reads. And some might say that a father in his 40s with teenage boys, that might, might be the worst time for the father to be taken. What's going on here? Again, the faithful, providential hand of God at work to chase in this family and loving them bring them to repentance. He must, God will, because he is faithful and full of love, he will do what's necessary to turn them from their unfaithfulness and sin and bring them back to himself. Now, what would you think could have happened right there in that point in time? Naomi's there, two boys. My husband just died. What should we do? Could this be God's hand? What would you have done? Well, that was a great opportunity for Naomi to take her two boys and go where? Back to Bethlehem. Let's go back. This feels like God's hand training us, loving us, calling us home, like the prodigal son, like Hebrews 12, where God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Is this that? Boys, what should we do? Well, that's not what you see. You have one family's unfaithful persistence. Number five, one family's unfaithful persistence. Number four, verse four, verse four. These, these two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Oh no, that's not God's will, clearly revealed in His Word for these people at this time. The boys took wives. Now, God had never exactly forbid the Israelite men to marry Moabite women. He had clearly forbidden them to marry Canaanite women. But the heart of that law was that they would not marry women who would draw their hearts from worshiping Yahweh to worship false gods. And these two boys, Mahlon and Kilion, clearly violated the spirit of God's law. Ruth Orpah, these were Moabite women who were worshipers of this god, Chemosh. This was a people whom God had cursed for their idolatry. This is not a little, well, it's an issue of conscience. This is no issue of conscience. This is a clear violation of God's will. Again, not trusting God's promises to his faithful people to make them a great nation among those who worship Yahweh. Deuteronomy 28.32 mentions that even marriage to these women could have been itself a form of chastening. God told his people that if they ceased to worship Yahweh, he would give their men to marry idolatrous women. And think about what could happen to the children of such a marriage. I mean, we know that today, don't we? When when a person who seeks to honor Christ in a season of unfaithfulness to him chooses to marry an unbeliever, and those two attempt to bring up a family together, it's so difficult, beyond words. And so that was the trajectory set for these. Many were not just brought up in idolatry, children, but, but also children were offered to this idol as living burnt sacrifices. And not only that, but notice the text. The very end of verse 4, they didn't just marry these women and, and continue persistently in their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. They lived there about 10 years. It just keeps right on going. And so then again, you have number 6, Yahweh's faithful response. Verse 5, both Mahlon and Kilion died. So that the woman, Naomi, 
was left without her two sons and her husband. God continues here to faithfully, providentially, lovingly chasten this family. Naomi's husband died. Naomi's boys married idolatrous women. Naomi's boys died. Naomi was left with two young women that were dependent upon her. Naomi was a widow beyond the age of of easy marriage because she was beyond the age of childbearing. She talks about that later on. In an earthly sense, Naomi had no one to support her. She was left. She was bereft. And in fact, that word is sometimes used for the state following the chastening hand of God. What in the world is going on? Again, in steadfast love, Yahweh has chosen Naomi and many others whose lives will touch hers and many who will come after her to walk in this road of redemption from fall to glory, right? She is God's chosen person. Her family, something God has planned to do through her family. He has chosen them in His steadfast love. He will be faithful. He has been every step of the way faithful to keep His covenant promises. And because of that, Yahweh will not let her remain in her emptiness in the world. He causes her to be empty so that He can fill her with Himself and so that she'll return home. He chastens her lovingly, faithfully to bring about her repentance that she would leave the emptiness of her own unfaithful way and enjoy the blessing of God's faithfulness. So is there hope for Naomi here in the story? Absolutely. God has set His steadfast love and faithfulness upon her. God is bringing her to that place of repentance and restoration through His faithful, providential hand of chastening. And Naomi begins to realize this. Look at what she says, and this is just a sneak peek of next week. Look at what she does. She begins to realize this. Verse 20. She says to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She knew whose hand was behind this. For sure. Now, she didn't understand all of it and certainly she was feeling bitter and probably angry, as would we. But she eventually does see what God is doing. And another thing I'll just point out briefly here is that in, from, from verses 6 of chapter 1 all the way through verses 22 of chapter 1, the word return, the Hebrew word return, appears at least 10 times. The writer's making a point. The point is this, Yahweh brought Naomi repentance through his steadfast love and faithfulness. She returned. Not just physically. That's not what it's about. It's in the heart. And her physical return demonstrated what God was doing in her heart. Now, how does, how does this come to us today? How does this come to us? If God has chosen you, and you by His grace have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have begun to turn from your sin and walk with Christ by His grace, you are the object of God's steadfast love. You are the object of God's faithfulness. And you, God has placed on the road of redemption from fall to glory. And here's the thing. Here is your hope. Here is your greatest hope. God will be faithful to you. God will continue to show you steadfast love. But often it comes to you in ways that you don't see on the surface. His providential hand is behind the workings of your life. You are just one strand in this tapestry of redemption where Ruth is, where Naomi is. You're there if you're in Christ. 
And He will do in your life all that is necessary to bring you from fall to glory. And He will do through you in the lives of others all that He has planned to bring them from fall to glory. That is what God's steadfast love and faithfulness will do. And so even even when you come to a point of decision like that, like Naomi did, like Elimelech did, a test, a trial, a crossroads, and you've discovered and know the will of God for you at that point of decision, and yet you understand that to obey the will of God at that point, you will need to trust Him well, trust His promises, His faithfulness alone to fulfill those promises that you look ahead and say, I don't know how God's going to do this. And yet you also see a path of expedience, of security, earthly security, logical in the human sense, convenience, comfort, satisfaction, and you see the worldly choice, and, and that choice doesn't require trusting God's promises, but rather depending on our own human wisdom and efforts to gain what we desire for ourselves. And even that choice may be clearly disobedient to God's revealed will, but at that moment it seems to make the most sense to you. It seems to promise the most satisfaction. And even when you find yourself, like Naomi's family, taking the worldly path, the disobedient path, the faithless path, instead of obedience and trust in God's promises, even one small step of compromise at a time, just like it was with Elimelech and his family, when we do so, here's what you must know that God will pursue you by His steadfast love and faithfulness. That is His promise to you. That is who He is. He will not let you enjoy the mud puddle right, when He wants you to enjoy the, the ocean of His promises fulfilled in your life. He will lovingly discipline you. He will. That should bring you a sense of security and assurance. And open your eyes to see what He's doing in your life. He will bring you to repentance. That is His steadfast love and faithfulness. Even in spite of your sinfulness, God is so gracious and kind. In spite of your sinfulness, in spite of the devastation that even has resulted because of your sin. I wonder, I'm certain that, well, as much as I can be, that Naomi probably thought, man, my life is nothing but devastation and consequences. What good? I'm too far gone. What good can God do in my life and through Him? Wow, just watch the story unfold. God, in His steadfast love and faithfulness, is gracious to save and forgive and restore and make you fruitful. For the unbeliever, if God has set His steadfast love upon you, you will come to Christ and fall on your knees in repentance and faith toward Him. And He will bring you from the world onto this path of repentance and restoration. And if you are a believer, God will keep you. He will keep you on that road of redemption from fall to glory. So as we, before we pray this morning, I want you to ask yourself, do you see God's hand at work in your life like this? Have you seen it in the past? You probably have. And if it's not working like this right now, it will be in the future because we do wander, don't we? We are, like the song says, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But in those moments, don't get overwhelmed and discouraged and fall into despair because God's steadfast love will keep you and cause you to return if you are in Christ. And so what is our response to Him? Behold, the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. And return. Repent of whatever it is that God is doing to expose in your life. And begin to trust Him again in His faithfulness, in His promises, in His goodness. Well, we'll watch the story unfold and may the Lord continue to minister to our hearts according to His will. Let's stand and we'll pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask to see more 
of your great steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that you have provided to us everything in Christ to bring us from the place of groaning under the fall to the place of rejoicing in glory. And may we see everything that your hand does to bring us there and be grateful for it and trust you and turn from our worldly thinking and disobedient living to turn back to you with repentance and faith in Christ again and again. And we ask you to use us in the lives of others as well. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.